Fire Tribe, where you at? I hope you're ready, rising from the ashes and it's getting heavy Conspiracies, we got plenty and some are scary From aliens to Bigfoot, extraordinary, yeah, yeah Danunaki Dan and the homie Romy I was bugging out, all the crazy things he showed me Jesus bloodlines to the stars in the skies Always a good time, vibing with the fire tribe Hey, So wake up, wake up, get it cracking Rise out the ashes, I know you got a passion Kick off the combo with theories, many conspiracies Other dimensions, plenty ancient history Fire tribe, where you at? Wake up we about to get into it I know you can't get enough At home, at work It don't matter, turn it up Rising from the ashes You know what's up Hey, uh, Rising from the ashes Hello everyone Welcome to Rising from the ashes I'm Dan Unaki Dan And the homie is not here today He had to get called into work So he was not available for this interview And so I did it solo but it's all good. So I'm just going to put it out today because uh, it's a good interview. It's fun. And uh, we're a little bit behind on putting stuff out. So this is like a little little freebie bonus, unedited, just uh, straight to it, you know? Hope you guys enjoy. See you on the other side. If you enjoy our show and you like the content that we create, make sure to like and subscribe. Share with your friends. Hello, everybody. Yes, please, please, please do. Also, follow us on Instagram at RFTA Podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, you can email us at risingftashes at yahoo.com we are exclusively on all media united check it out altmediaunited.com forward slash rising from the ashes hello everyone welcome to rising from the ashes i'm danny naki dan and the homie romy is not here he had a go to work this morning so he's not going to be here it's just going to be me and today's guest adam stokes adam how you doing i'm doing great doing great thanks for having me yeah i'm glad you made it uh why don't you go ahead and tell the people a little bit uh about your background and uh how you got into writing the book about giants all right. Yeah, I can definitely do that. So my background is in languages and religious studies. Uh, my full-time occupation is that of a high school Latin teacher, but I also teach a college class, have done so for the past 12 years um, at St. Joe's University on the Old Testament. Um, so uh, languages, especially Greek and Latin and uh, just ancient Israelite history are my two babies. Always been fascinated about them. And um, always been fascinated with the idea that in the Old Testament, in contrast to what biblical scholars, mainstream biblical scholars would say that these are myths and allegories uh, written by people in the past, that they had no historical basis, uh, always interested in looking at these from a literal perspective and seeing whether or not these were actual historical events. And so that's what got me interested um, in looking at the ancient giants at the beginning of the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, because in a lot of these stories, uh, they do seem 
uh, to be based on uh, events that took place in world history or more specifically in Israelite history and can't be dismissed uh, just as mythology. And I think when you look at the Old Testament giants, you compare them uh, with uh, giants from around the world, you'll see, yes, these stories have been kind of embellished, but they have a historical core at the center of it. So it was really uh, my interest in uh, the ancient world uh, that that got me into, into this giant thing. And especially, uh, I guess more specifically, when it comes to the North American giants, my own personal religious views uh, coming from uh, Latter-day Saint faith, uh, my own personal religious views that these are in some way connected uh, with persons and people that we find in Latter-day Saint scriptures, such as the Book of Mormon, was something that really fueled my interest as well. Excellent, man. <clears throat> yeah, I, I remember uh, I used to talk to Mormons for quite a while. They'd come over to my house and we'd have conversations for about an hour or two uh, yeah. every Sunday or whatnot. I, I, I love I love talking about religious stuff. Um, I, I see the Bible as uh, like a, a historical history. Uh, I, I just the only difference for me is I just take out all the spirituality part and go with what it says about the historical part. And so uh, I connect it to kind of all the other different myths around the world and uh, try to see the similarities and try to bring out those similarities a little bit more. Uh, so I, I remember an interesting story that one of the guys, uh, one of the elders told me when he came over was that of the fact that uh, they, they, I think they dug up some bones when they came to America. What, who Was it Levi? Lehi, yep. Lehi, Lehi. Yeah, and, he's the uh, old uh, Papa Smurf kind of dude in the in the Book of Mormon. Okay, yeah, and they they dug up some bones, and I think they said they found like a a giant sword and a like a like a breastplate, but it was like too big for an ordinary man. Yep, yep. The story he's probably referring to is the story of the Jaredites. So Lehi and his son Nephi they come over from Jerusalem. And they find remnants of they're a re, they end up being a remnant of ancient civilization, but they find a remnant of ancient civilization, according to the Book of Mormon, known as the Jaredites, who seem to be these persons of really gigantic, uh, tall stature. And it's interesting because in early Mormon tradition, you get this with people such as Parley Pratt. Um, the Jaredites um, are said to be descended from Ham, and if you look at Ham in the Bible, there's a dude uh, in Genesis. Let me see. I'm going to say Genesis 11. I should know this better being a uh, Old Testament professor uh, named Nimrod, who's said to be this gigantic person. So uh, the Jaredites seem to be related to him. And that would explain uh, why they're these huge. Uh, they're these uh, people of uh, taller than normal stature. Interesting. From Ham, huh? Yeah. So. What. What time period are we looking at when uh, Levi and Nehi, or Lehi and Nehi came over from, were they coming over from the African continent? No, well, they're coming, Lehi and Nephi are coming from uh, Jerusalem, but the Jaredites, okay. who were oh, okay. way before them, Jaredites dates around the time of the Tower of Babel. Um, okay. There's a direct connection. They leave the Tower of Babel. In fact, they're the only group whose languages aren't babbled up, so to say, uh, in the Tower of Babel story. So, this is thousands of years before Lehi and Nephi, but Lehi and Nephi, they're much later. They're around the time of the Babylonian exile right before then. So about 586 BCE, but the Jaredites go way back to kind of primeval, uh, primeval history. 
so yeah, so Jared has come from Ham. So do you know how far that line goes back? What um, they possibly I, come from? What bloodline or anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, according to the biblical tradition, Noah's bloodline, but we're talking, and I, I, I know other people have talked about this before. Um, I think that with these primordial giants, you have a connection that goes way, way back to, to the people of Atlantis, who are also described mm-hmm. as being uh, taller in stature. And here's where, like you said, Dan, the connection between uh, the Old Testament and other other uh, traditions, yeah. uh, other legends that we find throughout the world uh, comes into play. So I think that they're directly connected with whatever that lost city was. And if you look at the Tower of Babel, um, even though uh, there is kind of a linguistic connection, Babel can mean Babylon, but it seems to be a very sophisticated structure edifice similar to the types of really sophisticated high-tech structures, high-tech buildings that we get in Plato's description of Atlantis. And do you have an idea of of when the Tower of Babel might have been? Because that, that one kind of eludes me. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, off the top of my head, I'm thinking maybe uh, 6,000 BCE or okay. something, but way, way back. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm kind of with you around there about six or 7,000 BC on that one. Um, so have, have you been on any digs or anything and saw these giant bones for yourself or. I have, I have not. Um, I okay. have been on some uh, archeological digs. In fact, this past summer I was in Iowa uh, looking at a, a temple site there that seems to be, may be connected. I think that there's a strong connection uh, with the book of Mormon at that temple site. Um, so, and I did in college, I did some archaeological cataloging, not for anything Book of Mormon related, but just ancient Israelite. So there's a guy named Tobias in the Book of Ezra, um, who, and I got to catalog his doorpost. That was actually kind of cool. Um, but I haven't seen giant, uh, the giant bone remains, uh, myself. There are some private museums, uh, that have them. Um, and this is a question that gets raised a lot. You know, people say if there were these giants here, where were all the bones? Well, there's a couple of ways uh, to answer those questions. Uh, when these giant remains were found in the uh, mid-1800s, mid-19th century, they were found in these uh, earthworks, these mounds that we have all throughout the Midwest. And if bones, uh, the way the bones are preserved, they're preserved in a bog. And if they're taken out of a bog, then they disintegrate very, very easily mm. and quickly. So um, people who found these bones, they didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know how to maintain them. So a lot of them just disintegrated. Uh, the ones that did not uh, were uh, sent to the Smithsonian. And there's a whole thing going down another rabbit hole there. Yeah, we, we know what, about the Smithsonian. Yes, <laughs> what they did uh, to, the giant, to the giant bones. But we have pictures of this stuff. And people, mainstream archaeologists will say, Oh, well, these pictures uh, were doctored, but we have thousands of, of pictures of news articles also of news articles. Yes. So these things were recorded. They're very, very well documented. Uh, probably one of the best well documented things uh, in archaeology in the 19th century. Um, and even say if, you know, five or 10 percent of this stuff is legit, I think a lot more of it was. Uh, but even if only five or 10 percent of it was legit. Uh, then we have a very strong evidence for a giant civilization that once existed here in North America. I'm I'm guessing they haven't done any DNA analysis on these giants, but 
Uh, is there any descriptions of, of what they look like when they uncovered them from, from the mounds? Yes. Yes. Or the so, height, the height and stuff like that and hair color yes. at least. So we're, we're talking about, you know, with this, with the smaller size giants, about uh, seven feet, uh, the tallest giants, uh, nine feet. We even have traditions that take them up uh, to 12 feet. And when people find them, they are uh, basically buried with jewelry, with household items, with other servants. Their servants are normal sized human beings like us. Um, so they seem to, the giants seem to have been part of this aristocracy or uh, to use a Roman parallel, this kind of like patrician class uh, that really controlled uh, everything around them. And they had this empire that stretched from Ohio all the way down uh, to Mississippi. Uh, but they're there. So the women are buried with jewelry. The men are buried with armor, just the same type of armor that, you know, the, the Mormon missionary mm-hmm. described to you. Um, so being larger uh, than stature. Um, we also have Native American traditions uh, that talk about the height of these giants, you know, being um, extraordinary seven to nine feet um, and uh, very hostile in their disposition. The reason that they were able to create an empire is that they basically subjugated everyone else. So uh, just like the Romans and Greeks did uh, in the old world. Hmm. Yeah. Before we get into like uh, the, the, where they came from part. uh, Yeah. I, I blanked right there. Uh, or what was I thinking about that? Oh man. Well, yeah. Like what do you think the giants are? Like, where do they come from? What created the giants? Uh, I mean, I know Genesis six, the Nephilim and everything yeah. and the men of renown part. Uh, and we can get into that too, but I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think like the world was in a different, uh, composition where the air was different or the oxygen or the carbon was different and, and people were allowed to be uh, of bigger stature because, you know, they, there is like a period in time where they talk about, um, uh, oh man, mega, mega, megafauna, the megafauna yeah. time period when all the animals were Every, a lot everything was big, larger. Much bigger. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, you know, I think that raises a good point. I think that, you know, we, and I say this, I've said this on other podcasts, we like to think our, of ourselves as the pinnacle of civilization, mm-hmm. that we were the greatest. But I think that there has been a downward decline, honestly, and that the ancients had their stuff together and were a lot more technologically advanced than even we are. Um, so Homer talks about uh, in, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad that the men of ancient times were mightier and stronger than even the men of his day. So why is that? Um, well, there could be uh, some type of, of climate change. I think that when you get stuff, you know, like the Ice Age and stuff like that, you know, afterwards, uh, whatever happens, however it jacks up the environment and the atmosphere and stuff like that, human being, not just human beings, but all of creation, uh, the animals as well, they're just not the same size, not the same strength, and don't have the same abilities as uh, primordial people. Now, Looking at the identification of um, the giants, uh, so you have in ancient astronaut theory that these were uh, aliens who have fallen uh, to Earth. So Zachariah Stitching, one of my favorite authors, he argues this. Um, I just think that I don't have, at least for the giants, for other things, I, I do believe in extraterrestrial uh, contact. Um, 
but uh ah yes yes i love that book that's on my my bookshelf as well so um but i think for the giants they were just part of this uh world that was you know where things were better and bigger and stronger than they are now and um i think that um if there was a if there was a specific site of origin that you could connect them to i think it would be atlantis and that's why they're not specified in the old testament outside of the terms Nephilim, the fallen ones, which you can interpret a lot of ways, not just like, you know, a fallen spirit or a UFO or flying saucer falling to the ground, but also just a fallen civilization. Um, but, and I think, you know, even the biblical authors didn't know the name of that civilization. That's how far back it goes. But I would connect it, you know, kind of with the primordial uh, myths of Atlantis. If you look at the, I think, Book of Kings of the Pharaohs, you know, uh they seem to have a lot longer of a lifespan yes up until a certain point and then their lifespan got shorter i've heard yes. many of people attribute that to maybe the younger driest period or the end of the ice age changing that and my kind of idea on that is maybe that the giants were giants still but the fact that the world changed they they became weaker yes. and were more a easily uh defeatable because that's and that's why a lot of these uh smaller pop people and populations were able to overtake these giant civilizations yeah yeah um you give any I credence think, to that yeah and i think that you know so uh Sitchin talks about this and you see it kind of in the old testament as well so you have people like adam and stuff living for 900 years and then slowly uh through abraham into moses it goes down to kind of normal range. So Moses is around 100 or something when he dies. Uh, kind of like, you know, if you live a good life uh, today, uh, you could probably reach that. So it gets more normal. Um, so uh, this is something that we see in all uh, traditions. And this is where I think, you know, mainstream biblical scholarship starts to be lacking because they'll try to explain this. Oh, these are metaphorical dates. Uh, these are just myth and allegory. But as Stitchin, I think, correctly argues, these dates line up. Per, you can't there's no way to fudge them um, without, you know, confusing the years and confusing the chrono, chrono, chronology. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, these seem to be uh, to have been uh, historical, uh, historical persons um, in the Old Testament. It's interesting because you do have later giants who appear to be a little to be weaker, sometimes considerably weaker than the giants that you get in Genesis six. So Goliath, probably the most famous giant of the Old Testament. Um, he's not as tall as his predecessors and he's not as strong as them. You know, David uh, uses a slingshot, knocks him with the, the big freaking uh, stone in the head and he's able to go down. So he's not as as mighty as his predecessors were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there was like a kind of like a weakening and uh, they're able to get them, you know, conquer them and overtake them. Uh, yeah. That's it's, that's very interesting. Uh, when when uh, when the Smithsonian found these bodies in America and stuff, do, do you recall what color their hair was or? Yes, that's actually a really good question. So um, a lot of them had. So we have uh, the Paracas skulls. He said, uh skulls they're redheads um but a lot of these um giants seem to have had blonde hair and um i know some other giant researchers such as fritz zimmerman uh he has said that you know he's made a really i think compelling connection that these were from uh europe so celts uh from uh, ireland 
uh, for example. Um, and so people, and then people will say, well, doesn't that contradict these uh, having, you know, their origin in, in uh, the biblical, in the biblical sphere in uh, the ancient Near East? And I say, no, not necessarily, because uh, we have uh, in Irish tradition, um, in British tradition in general, um, a lot of these giants, a lot of these figures um, that you get in mainstream Europe trace themselves uh, to the Near Eastern world, uh, to uh, the Israel-Palestine region. So um, interesting fact here, um, interesting Jeopardy fact here. So uh, the uh, Danish, so the Netherlands, mm-hmm. um, that term comes from the word Dan, the tribe of tribe Dan, of Dan yeah. from uh, the Bible. So um, a lot of, and this is a longstanding tradition, uh, not just in Mormon tradition, but in European Christianity, that the people, the Danish people are actually descended from the tribe of Dan. So um, at first, and I think this goes back again to your point of the interconnectedness of all of these uh, different mm-hmm. traditions, religions, and legends. Um, what seems to be a disconnect at first, so what, what do we have these Celtic giants doing here? Well, they're probably related uh, in some way to the Israelite giants um, as well. But uh, we know that yeah. they were likely a different race from the Native Americans, but they interbred with the Native Americans. Um, they intermixed with the Native Americans. Um, and there's a lot of Native American features uh, that were retained, that were in their culture, and that the Native Americans themselves have retained from the giants. So fascinating, man. Uh, so, yeah, like you said, the interconnectedness of everything. Um, it seems like they find, they're finding these tall giants uh, with red hair uh all over the place and also like uh the the moai statues of easter island Mm -hmm. they apparently had these like uh i don't know what to call them they they look kind of like the devo helmets you know yes yes like maybe hair buns or something i'm not sure but what they say is it's a reflection of the fact that their hair color was red yeah um, and then on the back of them, it even has those uh, those bird emblems that you uh, find on the um, T pillars of Gobleki Tepe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that means uh, they were able to go very far and wide. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, people say, "Oh, so um, there's kind of two camps within uh, archaeology." So. There's uh, the migration model and then there's a diffusionist model. And mainstream archaeologists um, a lot of times uh, just um, reject the diffusionist model that, you know, uh, there's not the influence of one culture on another. But I think all of this and I think the Easter Island uh, stones um, are statues are an excellent example of this, that uh, these cultures knew each other. They were able to travel to to uh, see one another. Um, and that was not at all out of the realm of possibility. Um, we know, uh, and I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, that the Vikings traveled from the old world to the new, uh, the Polynesians do it, um, and we have evidence that, uh, very strong evidence that the Phoenicians did it. And uh, so you have uh, this kind of mingling of cultures uh, through this diffusionism that's going on all over the world. Yeah. Do you do you have any take on Lemuria? Do you believe that's a real place or bogus or uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that all of those places um, are uh, remnant uh, race memories of these really advanced, amazing civilizations uh, that got 
forgotten over time, that fell over time because, you know, they got kind of like we are now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we got to, they got to their pinnacle. They got really arrogant. Um, they they stopped caring for everyone in their civilization. So they kind of threw, you know, the, the working class person uh, to the dust. Um, so they and they, they fell because of their own pride. And uh, over time, over thousands of years, uh, not that much was left of them, except for the memory that people had of these ancient civilizations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we get into like the hybridization part uh, coming out of the Middle East. Uh, yeah, I, man, my my brain is not working this far. It's early for me. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me see here. Uh because uh, I'm kind of thinking as as you're talking to me and uh, things are going on in my head and then I'm like, oh, I'm going to ask that and then then I get into what you're saying again and then I lose it. Uh, but okay, so we're talking about Lemurians and Atlanteans. So, okay, so do you believe that America was a former home of Atlantis? Possibly. Um... Yeah, that's that. You know, that's an excellent question, because you have this tradition that pops up even in biblical apocrypha of this uh, of this land, these islands beyond the sea. Mm-hmm. And never says how big these islands are. But you have this tradition, uh, not just in, in biblical apocrypha, but even in Chinese folklore of these islands that exist. Um, they're going the opposite direction. They're going east of themselves. Um, that exists in the east or in the west, however your your orientation is, which puts you, um, which uh, which lands you in um, or on uh, the American continent, whether North America or South America. That is a possibility. Um, I think that um, there's there's better evidence that it was probably located somewhere in the British Isles, um, but um, I don't know. I, I think that For Atlantis, the British Isles. Atlantis, yeah. So, uh, what's the evidence for that? Uh, well, there was um, a couple people talked about this. Uh, Gavin Menzies, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did, I have uh, one of his books. The Lost Atlantis, I mm-hmm. think, is the book is called. Yeah. Um, he makes some compelling claims for that, um, but I haven't really taken a position. I would say, you know, uh, maybe. And this is something, you know, now you've got the cogs working in my brain that um, I could pursue some more. But maybe uh, North America as uh, the land or at least near the Atlantis uh, area. And this would explain why uh, the giants of the ancient Near Eastern world, the Israelite Egypto giants, as I call them, would have known to travel to this place. So they retained a memory or they retained knowledge of where their former empire was. had once been so mm-hmm. um that's actually something something to explore in more detail i do know um frank joseph wrote about this a, a little while back and he had pictures of it in fact in the great lakes region where the hopewell and adina um were uh they have found underwater an ancient pyramid um, oh really link, uh to that um yeah but, please do uh, there's an ancient pyramid they found there. Um, nobody knows what it's doing there, why it's there, wow. um, but very, very fascinating. Hmm. Uh, because, uh, you know, in the Amazon, they find terra preta, which is the soil that had to have been made by humans. 
uh, in the Amazon, and then you have the Peruvian uh, culture in Peru, Peru, yeah. which means devil, and uh, then you have uh, like the Rishat on in Morocco and Africa. Yeah. And then you have uh, the Azor Islands uh, uh, of Portugal, which is right next to Spain in a town called Dona. Yeah. Uh, so, again, with Dan, yeah. uh, you yeah. see this uh, Dan, uh, which is tied to the serpent, too, the horned serpent in the grass, mm-hmm. um, biting at the heel of the horse. Dan, I'm, so, blanking, I'm blanking on his name, but there's another scholar um, I think he was on Blurry Creatures recently, but he uh, was talking about, you know, all these different possible identifications for Atlantis Mm -hmm. and basically came to the conclusion that all of these, why you have all of these uh, possible um, possible options is that they all retain some aspect of Atlantean technology um, or Atlantean culture. Uh, that when Atlantis was destroyed, it got spread out. So it went to everywhere, Africa, Europe, Asia, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so I kind of believe that it was like a chain of islands in the Atlantic. And they used the, those kind of places as like uh, trading outposts. And, they, and then they used the continent coastlines yeah. as like uh, home bases, yeah. kind of like in, in America, in South America, in Africa, and then again in Europe. Yeah. And then they have the island chains and those are the ones that cover, got covered up by water and some of the coastlines, uh, like we see the Bermuda triangle and the, uh, Bemini road yeah. over there. Um, so that's kind of what I think it is. I actually have, a, a another, uh, theory that goes a bit deeper into what Atlantis is and stuff, but, um, I don't, I, I want to stay on this topic here. Uh, and then, oh, so in that Gavin Menzies book, he says that he goes into Crete. They uh, punch out a wall that was made of lava. It was thin enough for them to get behind. And when they went back in there, they found this big giant relief that was painted of uh, all kinds of different ships that they were using. Yeah. And so uh, that brings to my mind, and he, I think he dates this to about 2,500 BC that they have these big giant ships that could easily carry hundreds of people and they could easily go, uh, across the ocean and in them if they wanted to. So this idea that people have of people not being able to come to the Americas from, you know, the European or African continent is, is kind of ridiculous because there's, there's already, proof that ships existed a long time ago yeah and then if you look at it the bible starts off with noah building a giant yeah, ship save everything where he goes you know after you know when the flood hits so he's traveling around there i mean he, <laughs> he builds a ship clearly enough to get you know most of the animals right of the world on board so um yeah I, like i said i think ancient civilization was much more advanced uh than we give it credit for um we found here in north america we found phoenician coins and a lot of evidence yeah. for the phoenicians and we know that uh they were able uh to their ships uh would have been able to travel uh to uh to north america there was a guy who did i mentioned this in other podcasts he did an experiment uh, where he built a Phoenician ship based on uh, the instructions, based on information that we have in ancient sources. And he sailed it around Africa all the way up to, you know, close to Florida. So 
there it was possible. No doubt that it's possible. I think that, you know, you have plenty of evidence for this, not just in the cultures that we see, the parallel cultures that we see throughout the world, um, but uh, geological evidence. So, for example, uh, the copper from Europe appears to have come, a lot of it has appears to have come from the copper mines here in Midwest America. So um, direct uh, kind of diffusion uh, there. So uh, a lot of evidence for this stuff. Uh, when you said earlier when we first started the show that you, uh, you're a linguist, right? You, uh, uh, yes. You know many languages? Uh, yes. Uh, so you study like, do you study the phonetics of language? Uh, yes. So do you think, uh, the Phoenician and the Finnish have any, any connection there? Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, when the term Phoenician is translated into Greek, um, you have, uh, I believe it's phi, so P-H. Oh. But that gets, tr- uh, that can also get translated as an F. So it's the same, uh, it's basically the same sound. So Finnish yeah. or Phoenician, um, is kind of interchangeable. So, um, I think that there, and I, you, you see this in a lot of languages. I think that there's definitely, you know, a connection there. Yeah. Usually if the sound that it makes the same is because it's vibration of that word. So if mm-hmm. you're saying the same word, even though you're using different letters, it, yeah. it's still getting across the same, uh, yeah. vibe. Hebrew has this all the time. So when Hebrew terms get translated into Greek, into Latin, uh, this spelling may look different, but the sound is retained and you can tell from the sound that it connects to that particular person. Yeah, man. Um, so let's get into Egypt though. And, uh, and kind of like the Nephilim, let's get into a little bit of Genesis six Sounds good. and, uh, and, uh, what we have in Genesis six is, you know, um, the, the fallen angels coming down from Mount Hermon into, into i guess the land of israel is that where yeah. they're coming into and then uh they're well you know that's, that's a good question is it is it the land of israel <laughs> yeah, i mean it's it could be lots of different places it could be turkey could be uh uh could be china they could have went all the way they could have went to russia i don't i don't really they could have went north or south or yeah. east or west so I, it, I don't... it's always been interesting that the biblical text uh seems to be kind of ambiguous there. I mean, depending, you get some directions for, you know, the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tigris, Euphrates, the River Cush. Um, but really, it's it's really generic. You don't get specificity in biblical geography up until around the time of maybe the Tower of Babel, but certainly not until the time of Abraham. So I don't know. I mean, we, we assume if you watch Bible movies, it's always everything set in Israel, Palestine. But I don't think, you know, when you're as early as Genesis 6, I don't even, I don't know if you can actually set it there. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons why I go by the name Dan Unaki is because of the tribe of Dan and Anunnaki. And uh, and Ancient Origins uh, produced an article that said that they found um, ancient symbols, uh, which look like a uh, first writing, um, and they found that in the Danube River Valley civilization, on on the west coast of the black sea yeah and uh and that predated the sumerians by two thousand years uh so i uh i kind of put the two names together and formed that as as the name um but um 
the the Dan tribe is very interesting to me too. Um, and, and it seems like these people that came, you know, off the boat, so to speak, of of Noah's Ark or out of the Ark, um, they seem to have uh, been like the leaders or the progenitors of these different groups of people. Um, yeah. Like sure. you have the Anunnaki and then you have like you know, all these different God groups that you have uh, being praised. It seems like it's almost all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because Josephus um, again, kind of the synchronization Josephus was a first century Jewish author. We get our first references to John the Baptist and a lot of the biblical figures in the New Testament from him. There's even a reference to Jesus, which is controversial. He may have written it, may not have. Um, but Pontius Pilate, John the Baptist, King Herod, we get all our references uh, uh, from him. And he wrote um, a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. And in it, he connects kind of all these primordial uh, groups, uh, Ham, Shem, Japheth, uh, with the Greek gods. So they're their uh, ancestors, as well as some of their descendants, um, in their mightiness, in their greatness, he uh, connects them with the Greek gods and says, you know, these were uh, these these mighty, almost demigod type of people. They were so cool. They were so awesome that people started worshiping them. And this is where you get the Greek pantheon from. So, uh, very right. interesting. So all, but all these gods that we see being worshipped everywhere are, in fact, Nephilim, right? Yeah, yeah, I yes. Um, and Josephus makes that connection himself. So Heracles, for example, he says goes back to the ancient race of giants in the Bible, and he connects them directly to Genesis six. So, however, mm-hmm. you're translating that term Nephilim, yes. And um, it's interesting because you quoted uh, from Genesis six earlier. So these were the heroes of old: Anshashem, men of the name, um, uh, Ishkabor. So these mighty kind of demigod type of people. And this gets really interestingly translated uh, in the Greek and Latin versions of the Old Testament in a way that you can really easily uh, interpret it and read it as a reference to what becomes the Greek gods or the gods of you know old times. Do you have, uh, in, in your ling- linguist uh, expertise, do you have a transformation of the word uh, Nephilim? Because uh, most people say it means giant, but I, I think it might have a different connotation myself. Yeah, yeah. It's um, so the Latin and the Greek use um, gigantes, which is giants. But there are some traditions that um, so you have the Nephilim who are connected to the B'nai Elohim in the Hebrew, the sons of God. That term gets interpreted as agilas or uh, messenger. Um, so. Um, it's 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 interesting because in the history of interpretation, Agalas is always translated as a supernatural being, but it can also just be a very kind of of uh, powerful uh, person. So um, if you look at what Agalas do in the in what uh, Agalas or Malachim in the Hebrew do in the Old Testament, they do some some pretty powerful things. They're able so the angel of the Lord. In the Book of Kings, he's able to chop down, you know, 2,000 Assyrians in one night. So these are, if you take the supernatural element out of it, uh, these would in any case be uh, very powerful and mighty, mighty people who had uh, superhuman 
um, abilities or abilities beyond the norm. Um, with with the name messenger, uh, is is the word Messiah derived from messenger? That actually, so the word Messiah comes from uh, Mashiach, which means uh, from Mashiach, meaning uh, anointed one. So there's not um, an actual uh, connection, even though um, in early Christian tradition, um, there is, uh, Justin Martyr does this, for example, Tertullian does this, where uh, they equate uh, uh, Jesus as the Messiah Christos with the uh, angel of the Lord. So the Agalas Kiryu. Um, so that connection, there is that direct connection made, but from a linguistic perspective, the two words aren't related. Okay. Excellent. Um, and then um, the heme part. Uh, so in, in Norse mythology, they uh, heme means home. And like yeah. they have the nine different realms and they all end in heme. Um, Jotun heme, Svartal heme. Uh, I think Nephilim is actually one of them also. So uh, do you think that maybe uh, like heme could just be home and maybe there's a, a word for nephil, which uh, could be, uh, you know, messenger or something to that effect. And then that would be their their homeland. Um, That's interesting. I never I never made that etiology. So the I am in Nephilim, that's um, technically a Hebrew plural. But we know that through kind of the disbursement of languages that I am is retained, sometimes in cultures that don't know its original meaning. But it's interesting because in Norse mythology, um, I actually teach a mythology course at my high school in addition to being a Latin teacher. But we have, um, in fact, there's a book I have in my other room called Adventures with Giants. And that's Mm. all about exclusively about Norse mythology and all the giants in those stories, including Loki, et cetera. are described in a way that is almost word for word the same as the Nephilim were described in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is definitely a connection between, you know, the European giants and the giants of the Near Eastern world. And when you think about it, if you just lay out a map and say you're a giant in the ancient, uh, in Israel-Palestine, and you're being a douche, you're oppressing people, and people get tired of you, and so they start fighting you and you have to flee, where do you go? Well, you eventually make your way. You keep going and going. What's the tip of Europe? The Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So that area where kind of the Norse mythology arises, uh, the Germanic Netherlands area, and then you keep going across the sea into North America. So I think that, you know, many of those Norse myths, um, I'll write a book about this someday. I think they have a direct connection to uh, to the biblical giants. Interesting. So then... Does that mean they have a biblical connection to also Satan? That is, uh, that's interesting. So, I mean, if you, if you give a supernatural explanation for them, and this goes back to kind of how Christians interpreted Genesis six as fallen angels. Um, in that case, um, there, there could possibly be, it's interesting because in North America, um, this past, uh, I was telling you earlier, this past summer, I was at a site, um, a, a temple site related to the Book of Mormon in Iowa. And we also got to look at um, a couple of relics known as the Michigan relics, which contain these inscriptions and uh, these images. Um, and they're very fascinating. There's a whole history behind them. Uh, mainstream academia, surprise, surprise, thought of these as frauds. 
uh, for a long time, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they are not. Um, I, in fact, believe in the authenticity of most of them, not all of them. I think some of them are scams. Excuse me, but I think, you know, 80, um, at least 80 percent of them are, are authentic. Um, but what is interesting, some of these pictures, Dan, are really, really dark. They're human sacrifice. Mm. They appear to be, you know, satanic ritual of some kind. Um, just really they're fascinating, but they're just really dark images. Nothing you want to you know, share with your kids at, at bedtime. So um, it's interesting because when you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, the connection with Satan, I think that there is a dark occult aspect to the at least to the religion. If you don't tie um, if you don't connect the giants as supernatural beings themselves they at least had a religion or a spirituality that was very very kind of dark and uh demonic centered yeah um, well, and you know that and that, and that raises the question you know where did they get this from um were they themselves descended from some supernatural evil so bringing in have do i have to bring in the yeah. supernatural explanation you know, here. Well, when you look at the Bible and, and it is uh, the fallen angel uh, of Satan that comes down and, and has sex with these women, yeah. uh, the daughters of men that create the Nephilim, which are the God men, which are the, the gods that are people are worshiping. So that means those people also have a direct line to uh, being the children of Satan. Yeah. And yeah. so they're, they're, they're like basically like hybrids, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of what you're going to go into. Like, I, I haven't heard the the Israel Egyptian uh, idea before. So uh, I kind of look forward for you to go go into that more and educate me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in um, in the book I published in uh, last year, 2020, uh, from Egypt to Ohio, I've been working on it a couple of years before then. Um, and it basically argues that, you know, the Israelites inherit this gigantic lineage from their interaction first with these Nephilim um, who don't die out in the flood. They're supposed to be done with, you know, if the flood, according to the biblical text, wiped out everybody, they're supposed to be done. But they pop up again during the time of Moses and um, during the time of Joshua. And it's interesting in the book of Joshua, we just think that he went all out slaughter and just killed everybody in the promised land. But in the book of Joshua itself, it says that there were people that he, including the people, the giants, that he was not able to drive out of the land and that they, quote, unquote, live with Israel to this day, to the time of the Deuteronomist who was writing uh, these stories. So uh, there is intermixing, interbreeding that Israel has uh, with these giants. So but they're also inheriting um, a lot of Egyptian uh, culture that they retain with them when they come out of Egypt during the time of the Exodus and through continued interaction, uh, political alliances, et cetera, with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians have, you know, giants in their own right in their in their history. So they're getting this gigantic lineage uh, from both of uh, these uh, these cultures. So this Nephilim culture that can't be identified and the Egyptians. And so what you emer- what you have is this Egyptian Israelite hybrid uh, that eventually uh, keeps going west overseas into North America. Mm. And that explains kind of the aspects of Egyptian culture that you get with the Hopewell and Adina. So many of their mounds uh, have the same exact dimensions as, you know, the pyramids of Giza. Uh, They seem to use a hieroglyphic writing. If you believe in the Book of Mormon, um, like I do, uh, it talks about the reformed Egyptian. Um, So there seems to, so that would explain kind of the Egyptian connection that you get with Lehi and Nephi, even though 
they are Israelites. Yeah, can we can we talk about um, America a little bit more and and how yeah. they have gotten kind of influenced by Egypt? Because um, I I know it's, your book is Egypt to Ohio, but can we go a little bit further west into Arizona? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the Grand Canyon, and and people say that they have found Egyptian tablets or statues within the caves oh, yeah. of the Grand Canyon. You know, um, you know, it's funny. I mentioned this uh, in one of the most earliest podcasts that I did. Um, the Grand Canyon. Um, I would love to just spend, you know, just a month. You know, you could <laughs> drop me off in the middle and, and spend uh, just a month there because yeah. there had there is, you know, so much ancient culture down there that people have found um and that interestingly enough i don't know why this is the case in modern times but it seems our government wants to suppress so if i got funding say if i was uh, jeff bezos bff and i got like funding if i got like 10 million dollars to do a dig down there and i had everything in place i had archaeologists there the u.s government would not allow me to dig there they wouldn't allow me to dig there at all um, people have tried it. People have had the funding for it. People a lot wealthier than I have have had the funding for it. And the U.S. government uh, refuses and they say, oh, we don't want to damage the Grand Canyon. But at the, you know, you, you pry, you pry off the layers and you realize that there's a little bit something more sinister, sinister there. So if you look at the traditions, not just what, uh, you know, European settlers have, have said, but the Native Americans, there are whole cities down there, um, that seem to, from their description, match and parallel like you said, cities that we get in the old world, um, in Egypt, um, and in Mesopotamia and et cetera, right there in North America. And well, nobody's able to touch this stuff because the government doesn't allow it. Right. I think it's, uh, Death Valley too, where it's, yeah. there's Devil's Tower and stuff. And, uh, those also, uh, I know some people think they're ancient trees, but they look like ancient cities almost yeah. on, on yeah. top of little mounds. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you get the name of California, and uh, people will say that relates directly to an African uh, goddess named Khalifa. Yeah, yeah. Or Kali. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because um, so we know the Olmecs were probably an Asian African hybrid. Okay. Um, so you that 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 famous uh, stone relief where the dude looks, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. black with African eyes, or, I mean, with Asian eyes or something like that. Um, so we know that's the evidence for diffusion there. Uh, Frank Joseph he wrote a book um, about um, an African king, and I'm blanking on his name, um, who uh, traveled to uh, to, um, North America. He knew one of the roots, again, kind of this cultural diffusionism. He got it from some other people and, uh, traveled there. This was thousands of years ago. Um, but it was a change in the, in kind of the oral tradition of the Africans. Africans, uh, didn't write down their stuff, but it was retained in kind of the oral mm-hmm. traditions. Um, and so I think that, you know, that reference to the African goddess Kali, uh, could have come from, you know, kind of a, a settlement of, I think his, his name was King Nuba or something like that um who 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 may have settled there so um again so the giants weren't the only ones uh to settle in north america and i think that's why you get such a diverse uh diversity within the different types of giants who settled there as well as the different types of peoples who settled there um and you have at the same time not to dismiss clovis 
you you do have, you know, the Native American, uh, what becomes Native American peoples migrating through the Bering Strait. But you also have these other groups um, over thousands of years coming as well. And this, I think, accounts for, you know, the different different uh, cultural cultural remnants that you see, even in the very names of places such as California. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. When, when, King Juba. When, King Juba was his name. King Juba. Okay. Juba, huh? All right. It, it's interesting when you see these names of places, you know, and they, they correspond to different places. Because uh, most people don't even think that any people were in America until yeah. Columbus. And, yeah. and that's obviously a misnomer because yeah, there's Indians here when he got here. Yeah, there's Indians so. <laughs> here. They have memory of, you know, many civilizations, of different civilizations coming and interacting with those right. civilizations as well. So, yeah. yeah. So, I know some people go over the different names of the cities of uh, Salt Lake and uh, I think California. There might be one, and I think there's another one on the east somewhere. Uh, and they all seem to have, uh, like, biblical names uh, from Israel, like uh, uh, Zebulon or mm-hmm. Zion or something like that, you know, yeah. in, in the title. Do you think that was from um, the Mormons when, when they're – the founders of that were coming and they were naming cities and towns after these places from Israel or, uh, or was it here before they got here? That's a good question. I was actually just in Salt Lake about a week ago. Um, so, uh, for a conference actually. Um, and I saw a bunch of places have, you know, biblical names all, um, as you're driving into South Lake, I mean, into, uh, Salt Lake City Airport, you pass a bunch of towns with biblical names. Uh, some of that is Mormon. Um, okay. So they went out there and, you know, that was the Mormon promised land, a place where they were able to escape persecution and make something for themselves. Um, but there's also um, in a lot of Native American traditions, if you just read. So there's a Barnes and Noble has a famous book, uh, Native American uh, Myths and Legends. If you read those myths and legends, one, they're very similar to a lot of myths and legends that you get in the Old Testament. And two, um, there's a lot of Semitic features in Native American culture and the black Cherokee Indians, uh, excuse me, the black Irish Indians, uh, for example, will say that they're descended from, uh, the tribes of, from the tribes of Israel, from the lost tribes of Israel. So this isn't something, you know, you mentioned the Native American, uh, Israelite connection. This isn't something that Europeans uh, superimposed upon them, as is often argued. Uh, Native Americans will um, say this um, about about their own culture. I have uh, friends who are uh, Cherokee. Um, I've talked to them many, many times, um, and you know they say yes. Uh, the reason we have our tassels is uh, similar to you know the Jews um, in their form of worship. Um, many of our sacred uh, sacred uh, terms, such as the term Yah, which is the same as uh, the uh, the first uh, syllable you get for the divine name in uh, Hebrew is a sacred name in uh, Indian tradition. So there is a lot of uh, Native American culture that parallels uh, Israelite culture. And I think that comes uh, from Israelite influence. And so I think the names of some of those places, not all, even most, I think that comes from Mormon stuff. But I also think that uh, um, those are Native American names that they retained uh, from uh, the the influence of Israel on Native American culture. Uh, it's interesting that you say Black Irish tribe. Do you know what tribe of Israel that relates to? 
I am not sure. I think it's one of the lost. I think it's Ephraim. I'm not sure. Okay. Not sure. Uh, there's that whole Scotia story of, uh, do you, are you familiar with that? Um, I do not. I don't think so. Say more. Uh, Scotia uh, was a daughter of a pharaoh who uh, left Egypt during um, its persecution by the Assyrians. Uh, like uh, many of the people in Israel all uh, left into the north uh, because of the Assyrians. Um, yeah. So she left uh, with uh, some some dude from Italy. I can't remember his name. He was like a count or something like that to that effect. And uh, they went to Scotland, and Scotland was named after Scotia. It was Scotialand. Uh, yes, now I'm starting to see. Yeah, I, I, I've heard, I have heard of this story, so I don't know too much about it, but I have heard of it. Yes. Okay, so I was just wondering if that that's why I was asking, because if, if that had any connection with the Black Irish tribe I think from, so, from know, it, the Bible, then then that would give a little more validity. Yeah, there's, a, there's again an Egyptian Israelite. So um, they call themselves, uh, I believe, I don't want to quote, I'm not speaking for the Black Irish Cherokee, but I think that that nickname comes from the fact that they look like they're Scotch-Irish. So the main oh, okay. uh, group that is, you know, in, in that area of, of Scotland. So, um, which is interesting. I always like to think that if you look Scotch, if you look Scotch-Irish, Maybe there's more of a connection uh, there than you think. So hmm. it'd be interesting to pursue that um, in more detail. Yeah, I also heard a story, too, that uh, the song Kumbaya was actually uh, a Hebrew. Kumbaya is a Hebrew word. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So do you do you have any more uh, to add add to that? I mean, uh, well, Kumbaya, uh, it's like a, it's an African song. I think. Right. Right. Um, and we know that, you know, at least in Africa, there's a group in Ethiopia called the Falasha who claim to be Jews. These are the, the black Jews, not not the, the Hebrew Israelites, the kind okay. of black supremacist people that you get on, the, <laughs> on YouTube, not them, but actual people. They actually pra- have practiced for thousands of years and they claim to be descended from the Queen of Sheba um, and uh, her son, Menelik. Um, the Queen of Sheba was so. Is that the son of Sheba and Solomon? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, they claim to be descended from them. They've practiced a form of Judaism, which in some ways is a little bit dif- different than the rabbinic Judaism that you get uh, in mainstream Judaism. Um, but they practice a form of Judaism for many years, and their their language, Amharic um, um, or Ge'ez, as, as we say is a Semitic language. It's very similar to Hebrew and the Ge'ez Bible mm. is kind of a, um, is, is very much related, uh, has a lot of parallels with uh, the Hebrew text of, of the Old Testament. So that wouldn't surprise me at all, especially since we get a lot of our traditions, African traditions from Ethiopia. Wow. That's also where they believe that the uh, Ark of the Covenant is. Yep. There's a is whole in church. Ethiopia. Um, mm-hmm. The Church of the Ark of the Covenant. Yep. Uh, there, there's another. Uh, what's What's the book that comes out of Ethiopia? The, Enoch. Uh, the Book of Enoch. Yep. Oh, that comes from there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking of a different one. Um, the I thought it started with an M. It was like the parables of. Uh, oh man. Ahikar. No, uh, 
I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's so their Bible. Their Bible has like 20 or 30 more books than, you know, the traditional uh, Old Testament or, or Christian Bible that we have. Oh, it does. Both in both uh, Catholic or Protestant or even Orthodox. They have the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has a bunch of, dim, of different books. Do you think that has a deeper lineage or like a deeper, like a uh, rooted um, information that maybe hasn't been changed yeah, so much yeah, over absolutely. the years? Absolutely. Because um, the book of Enoch, for example, um, is we know that this retains a lot of really old traditions that people in the ancient world knew about and accepted but when Christianity, when Roman Christianity comes on the scene, when Christianity is taken over by the Roman Empire, they delete basically the Book of Enoch out of the canon. Uh, but that's retained by. So I think a lot of these ancient traditions uh, that got lost either deliberately or accidentally are retained in uh, the Ethiopian church. Does that have anything to do with the Oaspi Bible or is that a totally different place? The Oaspi Bible, that is, um, I know what you're talking about. I actually, I have a copy of that with the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ oh, okay. um, in uh, in my library next door in my office. Um, and I'm not sure. I need to look on that some more. But I think that was, the guy was, um, the guy who translated the Oaspi Bible was claiming to receive, you know, earlier revelation, kind of primordial revelation that okay. uh, could inform and enlighten us about some of the mistakes and errors in our current Bibles. But I'm not too. It's something I have to look at. Look at in more detail. All right. So, in your book, Egypt to Ohio, what you're saying is these hybrid uh, Israelite Egyptians yes. made it to America, yes. and they're the ones building these mounds. Yes, exactly. So the Hopewell and Adina can be traced back to this Egypto-Israelite uh, group. Okay, and. Uh, can you give us more on uh, maybe why were they building mound structures? Yeah. So why, if they're Egyptian, why aren't they building, you know, just actual, actual pyramids? Ziggurats um, and pyramids or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So that, you know, that's an excellent question. Um, so a couple of things are going on. So when you go to the mounds today, um, so I've gotten, I've driven to mounds all over the country, West Virginia, Ohio, Iowa, um, Indiana, um connecticut and delaware um you look at them and you're just like and i I take my kids with me just to like kind of bug them and they're like daddy we don't want to see these clumps of dirt it's just it just looks like clumps of dirt Uh, what you got to remember is that you know thousands of years ago these things were decorated far more elaborately just like the pyramid of giza um thousands of years ago was covered in gold with a white thingy at the top uh, these things are much more elaborate than they look like today. Um, secondly, you also have to remember that North America is kind of different, a different terrain than than Egypt. So uh, the ability and the ability to hew rocks and to use the type of rocks they used to build the pyramids wasn't really available to them uh, here. And they didn't have the slave labor class, even though they tried to do it with the Native Americans. They didn't have the slave labor class that was needed to build um, something, you know, from rocks and stone mm. um, like the Egyptians did. So that kind of uh, explains why uh, the mounds are a little bit different. But culturally, uh, they aren't that different. They have the same dimensions uh, as as the Egyptian pyramids. 
Um, they were used like the Egyptian pyramids. I know I get some pushback on this from my friends who are mm -hmm. um, who studied the pyramids, but they were burial mounds, just like the Egyptian pyramids were. Ooh, and they, ooh, I know, I know, that's I know. taboo. Last, last you can't last, say last. that. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they also had stuff buried. So, like I said, the giants would bury their servants in them, just like the pharaohs buried their servants um, in the pyramids with them, and they buried all of their favorite things uh, so that they could they could take all these things. Uh, to the next world. So uh, the the uh, mounds in North America kind of retain uh, that culture as well. Um, do you go into the fact that they have alignments towards the stars too? these mounds? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, similar alignment. Um, there are some scholars, Sarah Farmer, for example, goes into this in a lot more detail. So they seem to have had lunar and uh, stellar um, astrological al alignments, depending on the mound. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, I would I would suggest reading Sarah Farmer's stuff about this. She goes into really good detail about this. But again, a parallel with what you get with Egypt. And what what shape are these mounds? Are they all are they all just like little dome mounds? Or I, I know of Serpent Mound in Ohio. Yes. Uh, are they are they serpents? Are they all different types of animals and different all different so, looks? You have the serpent mound. Then you you have different types of mounds. Um, Greg Little, my friend, Dr. Greg Little, he does a great yeah. job. He has a book um, about Native American mounds, and he classifies uh, the different uh, types of mounds. So you have the more pyramidal, uh, plain-based mound, I would say, mound, which kind of uh, looks like the shape of a pyramid. There's steps leading up to the top. Um, so you have that. You also have uh, mounds that are shaped in the form of animals. So you mentioned the snake mound. Um, you have uh, bird mounds. Oh, there's a bird uh, one too, huh? Yeah. You also have uh, one of my favorite mounds, uh, which the Smithsonian for many years claimed that it didn't exist. And then they found the map of it <laughs> in uh, the Smithsonian. And now they acknowledge that it exists. It's called the menorah mound. And it has nine prongs mm. um, that look like uh, a menorah. So sometimes uh, I think all this, all this symbolism is religious but we have, I think the serpent, for example, is religious symbolism. But I think with the menorah mound, you have like a religious item. Uh, so uh, you have that kind of symbolism there. Uh, one thing you have to remember is that some of these mounds are, or the majority of them, yes, they're made by the Hopewell and Adina. But other mounds are made in imitation of the Hopewell and Adina mounds. So uh, other people, later people, who don't know the Hopewell and Adina, they just refer to them as mound builders. In fact, the Hopewell and Adina aren't their actual names. They were just referred to as the mound builders. People try to imitate building these mounds. And so that accounts also for some of the diversity that we see in these mounds. Yeah, the menorah mound. How many how many different uh, mounds is that? It's just, um, well, you know, it's interesting. So it's nine prongs, so it's about nine so different nine. mounds. Okay. Yeah. Because that kind of reminds me a little bit of of kind of what you see in Devil's Tower and, and Arizona and those ones, uh, the ones near the Grand Canyon too. They kind of like just pop up in different places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But people think they're trees. Um, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so um, I mentioned heme earlier, uh, like uh, you know Nephilim, uh, Elohim too. Uh, L L is a lot of people associate that with God. Yeah. Uh, but to me, I think it's more associated with just Lord of 
the land, like landlord. Uh, so the Lord of that land, not necessarily a certain individual, just a generic term for the person that rules over that area. And so I, I think Elohim might be a homeland to a people and, and, and not really necessarily a plural, a plural in the sense that it's a town or a city, not necessarily, uh, more than one yeah, person. Well, remember also that, you know, for the ancients, you know, I think you hit it on the head, on the head, um, a Lord, I mean, so a person, the person who's ruling, who is, you know, the, the, the Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos of the land for the ancients, that would have been considered a God. So a lot of people, so, you know, L for example, um, biblical scholars, I think this is where they are correct in, uh, in, in this particular case, L was likely an actual individual who existed at one time and uh, basically took over, conquered everything and was deified by the people who served him. So kind of like um, in Conan the Barbarian, you have Krom. Krom was actually a real giant sword fighter. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, then but gets in basically in Ron Howard's universe, gets deified as, as this type of God. So um, something similar is going on there. Yeah, see, I, I see the word like L, like Lord, or like you could say like president, like uh, L Biden or L Trudeau yeah. or something yeah, well, like it, that. It's interesting because in the Abrahamic traditions, um, you have these different terms and, you know, these become Christian hymns and we spiritualize them. So El Shaddai, El Elyon, El, um, basically just a bunch of these different L names. And what biblical scholars will argue for is this refers to the Lord of that particular place. So El yes. Shaddai, El of the High, uh, yes. the Lord of the High Mountain, yes. El Elyon, um, the Lord of this this hill. Yes. Um, so it's not referring even to like a same deity; it's just a person who ruled in that particular area. And Abraham has to pay homage to the dude who rules in that particular area in order to live in that area himself. So yeah, that's so that, that's what I'm saying. So Elohim is the Lord of home which wherever the elohim land is or the, it sounds like kind of like kingdom of heaven in a way right yeah or uh lord of uh hosts or lord of heaven yeah. um so I, I find that so interesting um uh can we get a little bit more into uh the hybridization though of the of the the israelites and um the egyptians how 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 did the exodus part work like who were the people in the exodus and and uh you know what i mean like where did the hybridization part come in like before after that or and and like can you can you kind of unweave all these knots yeah yeah there's there's a lot of things going on all at once so um, so the Egypt, the Israelites already have that giant lineage from, you know, the, the Nephilim. But then in the Exodus, there's two things that are interesting about the Exodus. First is Moses himself. Moses is raised in the Egyptian court um, as uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So um, and we get this a lot in the history of interpretation. He is raised with this knowledge of the Egyptian pantheon, Egyptian culture, Egyptian philosophy. Um, so he is basically a, a, a center for uh, the uh, the influence of Egyptian culture on the Israelites as Israel's leader. 
Secondly, when it says that the Israelites went out of Egypt, it says they didn't go out by themselves. They were part of a mixed multitude. Mm. Um, so different peoples of the land, Nubians, Ethiopians, um, and also I think some of these uh, some Egyptians as well, um, who were part of a, a giant who had uh, giants in their in their uh, lineage as their ancestors. Um, so all these groups are uh, heading out with the Israelites, mixing with the Israelites. And this is where the tradition of giants within the nation of Israel uh, continues to be retained. So is there is there like a root giant of ham too? Or like a, a, a giant from ham and then a giant from Japheth and then like Shem yeah, is yeah, like I mean, a, think, a mingling so, of the two? Yeah, so ham you is... Say? Yeah, I, th- I think so. So ham is um, the father of the Egyptian and... Uh, the Ethiopian peoples, the African peoples. Um, and so, and you have already, um, as we mentioned before, Nimrod, who's this giant uh, mentioned in the Old Testament, also mentioned in the book of Jasher as a giant um, who basically becomes, um, like you said, Elohim, a lord over basically yeah. the known world for a little while. They drive him back, but then he mixes, but then the line of Ham with the Ethiopians, they're going to mix with the Israelites as part of this mixed multitude going out of the Exodus. And can you explain to also for people like how big ancient Africa was? Did it encompass like the Sinai Peninsula? Didn't that at one time used to be yes. part of Africa also? Because yes. many people say Egyptians are not African descent. They are Egyptian. Yeah. And, 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 and so, but Africa extended all the way th- yes. uh, up to Jerusalem, didn't it? Yes. Yes. So, um, so it's it's interesting because yes, the Egyptians would have been Middle Eastern, but they mixed a ton right. with Sub-Saharan Africa. And for a while, the 22nd dynasty uh was an African Egyptian dynasty. It took over, drove the Middle East Egyptians out, and ruled for about a hundred years. They get kicked out by the Middle Eastern Egyptians and they go back to Sub-Saharan Africa. But there's a lot of intermingling, and on the reliefs of the Egyptians, you often have sub-Saharan Africans as members of the court or as as servants or even within uh, the family of the Egyptians. So people want to put this really uh, big barrier between, you know, the Sahara, uh, Egypt, the Sahara, and sub-Saharan Africa. But there was movement and intermixing and exchange of cultures uh, with these places. In fact, the Nubia which were right below Egypt, they mm-hmm. had pyramids uh, just like the Egyptians did. They seem to have borrowed that from Egyptian culture, and uh, they kind of viewed themselves as kind of this imitation Egyptians uh, almost with their own little kind of Egyptian society. Also the Sudan, too. There's a, yes, right there. Yes, Mali and stuff like that. Yeah. There's many, many uh, smaller, smaller pyramids. Yes. Very, very steep, too. They're like little... They're more like points i wonder if there's yeah. something more under underneath those kind of like they discovered i think with so the, i definitely think so with the yeah. maui the maori have uh you know they were just heads now they're full bodies i wonder yeah. if there's something maybe I, I like that going that on the... i wish we could explore that the sudan is kind of a uh a rocky region so uh yeah yeah unfortunately we can't get in there but i definitely think that there is and uh sudan that's another dan name too uh yep. speaking of dan name sardinia 
uh, that's where they have recovered a lot of these giant bodies, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. yeah. So, and Sardinia, for people that don't know, is like a little island area in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Yep. Um, off of uh, Rome, Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so then are, are you saying that the Israelites are the sons of Satan? No, no. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I'm saying that there is influence, uh, blood lineage from the, the Nephilim to the Israelites, that the that descendants of the Nephilim, let me rephrase that, descendants of the Nephilim um, and descendants of these Egyptian giants uh, mingled with Israel, resulting in many Israelites themselves being of larger stature of extraordinary of extraordinary height. I'm working on a book for, like book on that right now. Okay. And that the this kind of ruling class of the Israelites. Um, when they are expelled by the Babylonians and before, um, I think migration was taking place way before them with the Assyrians. Even before that, they move westward, keep moving westward, and go all the way to the ancient to North America. So, so these god types though are are related to the hybridization, though, correct? Yes. Yes. So some of them are the is- Israelites, but some of them are not Israelites. Um, yes. So now I'm just saying that that same group, that group uh, of ancient giants intermingled with many, many different races. Yes. But Israel is one example of that. So okay. not all of them. So not all the giants are going to have that Israelite connection. But so many this, of them do. this is kind of like not all Jews are Hebrews, but all Hebrews are Jews. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> is that right? Did I say I that right? Say, I think yeah. I said that. Okay. Okay. That works for me. Or. Is there any uh, other other paths we can go down here? Um, you got anything else for me? Um, I think we touched on like a ton of stuff. Yeah, we, we did pretty yeah. well. Yeah. I, I really like this idea. Uh, no, I, for as 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 hateful as the Hebrew Israelites are, I uh, I sometimes do have to agree with them, and when you see how Caucasian people have treated a lot of the rest of the world. It's, it's very, uh, it's fucked up and I can understand their, their kind of sentiment of, of not being too happy uh, with the, where they call them the Edomites. Yes. Uh, I watch a lot of Hebrew Israelite videos and I find them uh, pretty compelling. They, they do explain a lot of history that people are not talking about of, you know, African peoples being in America. Uh, I think the way they present it, a lot of people just throw all that crap out and say, that's all bullshit. And I think that's, that's very sad, you know, to me. Uh, I think there's a lot of hidden history here in America and in South America. And, uh, really we, I I would like to just, um, unpack all that and, and, and really just figure out the history. Uh, you know, because I think it's so much more fascinating than what people believe it is right now. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's interesting because I saw a video a little while back that was compelling. It was by a Hebrew Israelite. Um, he wasn't saying anything in this particular video as <laughs> hateful. Yeah. Um, shockingly. Um, but uh, <laughs> he had um, he was talking about Noah 
And he was like, so Noah's Ark floated for what, 120 days or so? 150 days, I think there was a flood, so. yes. And he was saying, you know, well, where would it have, it wouldn't have landed on Mount Ararat. That's like, so that that's too short of a time. Um, this, the, the, the spacing doesn't work. And he basically said that there was a possibility that it landed in North America, which I found, you know, a very hmm. compelling, really interesting argument. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that, on that sentiment. Uh, yeah. And for all the reasons that we just touched on in this show, uh, we showed, you know, all the connections from Africa to, to California, to Arizona, to Ohio, the mounds there, uh, to the Mormon, uh, beliefs of the Lehi and Nehi and, and, uh, them being Israelites also, uh, is there, is there more information that shows, that America was uh, uh, settled by different nations in the past? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot have, of researchers have talked about this. I would read, you know, uh, Frank Joseph. Uh, Charles Mann has an excellent book called 1491, which talks about what the world yes. was like before Columbus came. And basically how, you know, this notion of the Native Americans just, you know, being hunter-gatherers living in tents is complete bullcrap. They had really sophisticated cities and stuff. Um, so there's a lot of research that's been done on this. Ancient American Magazine, which I write for, uh, presents a lot of this evidence um, every mm. couple of months. Um, so there is stuff out there for people if, you know, they want to get uh, another picture of what, you know, pre-Columbian America would have looked like. And in my opinion, a much more accurate view of what pre-Columbian America would have looked like than what you get in the history books. Is that a magazine uh, subscription or is yes. that a, like an online magazine subscription? It's a magazine. It's a, it can be both. So you can get okay. like a hard copy or a digital copy of it. Uh, where, where can people go to uh, uh, ancientamerican.com? Excellent. I and think... they have a bunch of um, those books that I mentioned Charles Mann, Gavin Menzies, um, et cetera. They have a bunch of Oh, books. that you can purchase? Yes. Okay, and as well as like a, a monthly uh, subscription, yep. magazine subscription, yep. and it just talks about uh, like evidences that they have found or archaeological things that they're yes, doing yes. at so the time right now. Many of them independent like myself, some of them with PhDs, um, so very good scholarship, um, but people, you know, uh, just reporting what, you know, they have found and evidence for diffusion in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Hebrew Israelites, they would say pretty much everybody in the Bible was of African descent. Would you kind of agree with that? Like David and Moses? No, no, I no, um, no I would not agree with that. I do think that you okay. have people of African descent who come into the nation of Israel in the Bible. Um, there's no doubt about that. So okay. um, Moses's Ethiopian wife. Um, several of the Kushites who fight in David's army, Abed-Melech, who is uh, one of the servants to uh, the king of Israel during uh, the Babylon Babylonian captivity. Um, so there, that's just uh, the queen of Sheba herself. Um, so those are just a few examples. So yes, I do believe that Israel intermingles with African nations, uh, that there are African people who join with the nation of Israel. Again, that mixed multitude that you get in the book of uh, Exodus, but I do not believe um, I do not think that uh, uh, ancient Israel uh, was was African. Okay, so so it was like a mixed multitude of a all the peoples multitude. in yeah. all in the area surrounding areas yeah. that were like kind of living with each other 
peacefully yes you know in a sense yeah okay uh a lot of people when you get into bible stuff they talk about the 12 tribes or 13 tribes and they attribute each tribe to a different ethnic background do you think there's like all the ethnicities came from those tribes in israel or is it or is that just kind of a way people try to describe i think people try to just so the hebrew israelites still have a list of you know the tribe of Gad were the Haitians, yeah. the tribe of the Haitians, Judah, yes, yeah. the North, uh, North, uh, Black Americans, um, the Dominicans are another tribe, the Argentinians are another tribe. Yeah. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I think that, you know, Israel was its separate race um, in uh, in interaction and in competition sometimes with the other nations and races of the world. But I don't I do not think that everybody uh, came from Israel itself. Okay. As even the biblical account suggests. So you have the primeval history and then it doesn't really get specific about Israelite history until the time of Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, I, I jive with that. Yeah. Uh, all right, man. Well, uh, tell the people where they can find your work at if they want to check up on you and, and find some more information or get your book Absolutely. or um, anything else you got going on. So uh, my book, From Egypt to Ohio, that's available on Amazon.com, uh, a couple other bookstores too, Books a Million, et cetera. Um, I have a couple books out, uh, just Old Testament related, nothing to do with giants. Um, those can be found um, on Amazon as well. Um, I have an author page. If you just type in uh, my name, um, that will those uh, books will pop up. Um, I'm also a contributor to Ancient uh, American Magazine, um, a monthly contributor. So I usually have articles in there. Um, I also have an um, Instagram site, which is how you found me, Adam the Giant Guy, uh, 2019. And I have a uh, Facebook page, Lingua Classica, which is my tutoring, Latin tutoring site. But I also put a lot of stuff about ancient history on there. Haven't done that much in a while with it. I need to update it. Um, but uh, those are the places you can find me. Excellent, man. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I, this is I, a uh, great. I found that conversation very uh, interesting and enlightening. It kind of helped me sort out some of the some of the knots that I had and in, in, in kind of like how I was thinking about things. Um, so uh, thank, I think I'm going to get your book and, and read that. And then uh, then I can really get into some nitty gritty details. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so thanks for joining us today, Adam. And uh I would love to have you on again and uh, after after we uh, get that book. Uh, So thank you everybody for joining us and until next time, wake up.